This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. And each week I have the opportunity through this program, America's Voice for Energy, to talk to a variety of experts who are involved, whether they know it or not, in the writing of my weekly column. Each week I watch for a news topic that provides me a way to keep a positive energy message in front of the media and the public. Well, last week, on Monday, May 2nd, the Colorado Supreme Court shot down the fracking bans in a couple of communities in Colorado. And that became the impetus for this week's column, but not the sole focus, as you'll hear with some of our other guests. But first, today on our show, we're going to talk with Tracy Bentley. And Tracy is the executive director of the Colorado Petroleum Council. And as I did my research on this topic, on the Supreme Court's decision, Tracy's comments were some that I used in my column. And so I'm welcoming Tracy to America's Voice for Energy for the first time. Tracy, we're glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. You know, it's great when I talk about uh, energy issues. I tend to have almost all men on the show. And this week, surprisingly, I'm going to have two women and two men. So it's when, you know, when you're a woman in the energy world, you just accept that it's pretty male-dominant. So um, we're delighted, I'm delighted to be talking with a, a woman for a change. So tell us, Let's start with the Colorado Supreme Court decision. Uh, Was that a surprise when it came out? You know, it really wasn't because here in Colorado we have a history at all levels of government, really, whether it's at the judiciary branch, at the legislature, and in all other places. Uh, People recognize the precedent that has been set legally and and statutorily here in Colorado of state primacy when it comes to oil and gas production. And so, while of course, we weren't uh, taking anything for granted and we were nervous. Um, I had high hopes and expectations that the Supreme Court would not overturn a hundred a hundred years of case law. Well, it was a unanimous decision, so that obviously had to be a bit of a shock to uh, the other side of the coin, the environmental activists, the anti-fossil fuel crowd, as I prefer to call them. I think it certainly was. And you spoke about how our decisions came down unanimously. In other states where we've got where the oil and gas industry has received favorable uh, outcomes, and I'm primarily speaking about Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and Ohio, where their highest court weighed in, those two states did not have a unanimous opinion. So in addition to having a favorable, we, Colorado, felt like we really made a statement um, about its support for the industry here with the unanimous decisions. So what do you feel that this unanimous decision, what is the statement that you see that that makes both to the people of Colorado, to other states who might be um, looking at putting in regional or citywide bans on fracking or oil and gas drilling as they did in Mora County, New Mexico, and to others who are the environmental community? What's the statement that this decision makes? 
Sure. I think the statement is, is regardless of whether or not you agree with a policy or not, there are uh, ways to go about changing that. And simply by trying to ban something that you've decided or, or a small group of you have decided you don't like is not only illegal, but it's not acceptable in Colorado or other places, especially when you have in Colorado, oil and gas contributes 25, over $25 billion to our economy. And to start shutting factions of our industry down is really sending a message, we're not interested in a healthy economy here. And I think the Supreme Court, like our legislature, realized that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that I quoted an article from the New York, New York Times that says that there are 50,000 oil and gas wells in Colorado. So that's a, that's a huge um, contributor to the economy. What kind of percentage do you know of the Colorado state budget comes uh, directly and or indirectly from the oil and gas industry? Sure. Um, well, it, I, I used uh, over $25 billion contribution to, our, to Colorado's economy. We contribute uh, over $3 billion in labor income, $200 million goes to school districts, and this all equals about uh, a little over 213,000 jobs. To put this in perspective again for you, um, Colorado makes seventh in oil production nationwide, sixth in natural natural gas production nationwide, and we rank 19th worldwide in natural gas production. So we're outproducing countries, entire countries, like Pakistan, Thailand, and Venezuela. Well, I, I know in my, my organization is based in New Mexico, and in New Mexico it's about 33% of the state budget is from the oil and gas industry. And in this downturn for the oil and gas industry with the, with the drop in prices, uh, the state legislature had a, had a real difficult time um, figure, doing a budget this year, and, and some of the cuts that were having to be made were to schools and to first responders. And I think people often don't understand that connection that the oil and gas industry provides for our well-being. No, I think you're exactly right, and I think, unfortunately, due to low commodity prices, where we are seeing less severance tax come in that spread across the state, people are starting to see that they may not get that new park that they had counted on, or they may not get to, to that new addition to the school that they were counting on for oil and gas money, and I think it's really up to the industry. Um, to go out and tell them, you know, why, and not to say that, that it's not going to happen, but this is what happens when you combine um, low commodity prices, which will certainly come back up, but if we don't make right po the right policy decisions while those prices are low, you combine the two, and that equals no more growth, um, loss of jobs, loss of uh, capital improvements that we need in, across our state. Yeah, and certainly that's why you do what you do and why I do what I do to help the public understand the role that energy plays in their life. Now, my research uh, that I do, you know, every week I write a new column on some news-based energy topic, and I do a tremendous amount of research for each and every column. And my research tells me that uh, the environmentalists, the anti-fossil fuel crowd in Colorado, is not going to take this lying down and that they are going to be looking at some ballot initiatives and getting signatures. Uh, I know that in certain pockets of communities, uh, you have, you have like-minded anti-fossil fuel folks, such as in Boulder, Colorado, which is kind of known for being the, um, you know, San Francisco of the Rocky Mountains. 
And But do you think that the majority of the people in the state have that view, or do they understand the role that energy plays? We believe, we strongly believe, that the vast majority of Coloradans understand the importance and the necessity for oil and natural gas production here in the state. In fact, we did some polling right around uh, last October time, and it was overwhelming. Uh, we were pleased to see that over 76% of Coloradans um, understand and value uh, oil and natural gas production in the state. So as you pointed out very well, we have pockets of anti-fossil fuel folks that, that oh, many of them are in Boulder and there, there are various other places throughout the state. But your average Coloradan who works hard, uh, goes to and from work every day, wants to provide for their family and keep their electricity bills low, understands the importance. So that's the good news. Well, good. That is encouraging news. So where do you see this whole issue uh, going from here. Uh, we've had this Colorado Supreme Court decision, but surely this is not going to be the end of the matter. No, it certainly isn't. We, we do have that faction like we just spoke about about people who they won't mm-hmm. be happy until things don't come out of the ground. And unfortunately, that means that has a devastating effect for all of us in Colorado and really beyond that because that literally... Yeah, exactly. All of the United States, it will be a devastating effect. Yeah, not, that's really a life change. I mean, that's going back um, hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's yeah. but that's what they want. So, um, so I see them trying at the ballot. It's unclear yet whether they have the monetary resources to do so or not, but we're taking it very serious, and we're ready for a ballot fight if they choose to bring one. And certainly, you know, the elections will be a big deciding factor for us in Colorado and certainly across the country because if we continue or if the effort is successful to elect anti-fossil fuels folks at all levels of government, whether it's county commissioner, school board, state legislature, governor, or, or Congress, um, that's going to be a big problem for us. Yeah, you know, you bring up an interesting point there that uh, we really need to be encouraging um, reasonable thinking citizens to be running for office because the the anti-fossil fuel crowd, the keep it in the ground movement is aggressively recruiting and funding candidates for many of these uh, smaller races, but but that have big impact. You're, you're exactly right. Let me give you one quick example in Colorado. We have the University of Colorado Regent seat is open, and there's been a lot of attention towards this particular seat because if they if they move one more, then the Democrats will have the majority. And I'm not suggesting Democrats or Republicans are good or bad, but what I'm suggesting is the person that they have put forward to win that seat is a very uh, aggressive anti-fossil fuels advocate, and if she were to, to win that seat, that means that CU would likely divest from fossil fuels. So that's one really good example. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned the Democrats versus the Republicans, and and I hate to make this a partisan issue, but I wrote a piece several weeks ago when we still had five candidates running for the presidency, and it was a it was an analysis of each of their energy policies, and my intention when I wrote the piece was to do you know like a paragraph on Trump and a paragraph on Cruz and a paragraph on Kasich and a paragraph on Clinton and a paragraph on Sanders, but as I got into the research. The three Republicans' policies were so similar, and the two Democrats' policies were so similar to one another, but 180 degrees opposite of the Republicans, that I thought, if I just write a paragraph on each one, it's going to be so repetitive. So I ended up basically lumping the three Republicans together and just pointing out the minor differences, 
and the two Democrats together and pointing out the minor differences. So, you know, whether you want to be partisan or not, energy has become a really pretty totally partisan issue. Well, sadly, you're correct, and the example that you just gave at the highest level is a really good one. In Colorado, we are fortunate. We have a Democrat governor who is yes. um, very uh, favorable towards us, and he's great to work with. And so I know that every state doesn't enjoy that, but at least in Colorado, we do have bipartisan support. Even in Senator Bennett um, has voted with us on several of our important issues. So uh, we're hoping that that continues no matter what the elections bring us here, but we'll see. Yeah, we certainly have seen it with the uh, news in the last week playing out over uh, Hillary Clinton's comments on putting coal miners and coal companies out of business. And for anyone listening who's uh, in the oil industry or natural gas industry, don't think you're excluded from that. You're just next, uh, as we have sadly seen. Tracy, we've just got about 30 seconds left, and I don't know you and I don't know the Colorado, Colorado Petroleum Council. Tell, tell me what your background is and what the Colorado Petroleum Council does. You bet. So uh, before I came to work for the executive director of the Colorado Petroleum Council, I was Governor Hickenlooper's legislative director and senior advisor on energy. The Colorado Petroleum Council is a division of the American Petroleum Institute, and you can visit us at uh, www.api.org. Great. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Tracy Bentley, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing with us what's going on there in Colorado. Uh, we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're having a fascinating conversation today centered around the court case that took place in February in Pennsylvania regarding the famed story of the water contamination in Dimmick, Pennsylvania, uh, allegedly caused by Cabot Oil and Gas. And we have with us today the lead attorney for Cabot Oil and Gas, 
on this case, and he's going to tell us what really happened in the courtroom, as there's not been a huge amount of coverage on this particular story. So, Steve Dillard, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to, to join us and answer some questions and, and tell us what really took place there in Pennsylvania. Well, first of all, Marita, thank you for having me on, and uh, I look forward to sharing some observations here with you over the next few moments. Uh, and you were very helpful with me in writing my column and giving me the insights because I was struggling to find um, the information in the news. Uh, you know, uh, the, the news stories didn't really seem to have the right, the right answer or the right, they didn't proje project uh, what really took place in the courtroom. Well, and on that very uh, point, let me make this comment right up front. Um, and that is, it, it was undisputed at the trial of this case that this case was not about hydraulic fracturing or fracking. So when we hear or read uninformed pundits or anti-fracking advocates say, uh, see there, we told you so, fracking is bad and it ought to be banned, that's absolutely false. This case was not about fracking, even though much of the publicity surrounding it before the trial and even after the trial focused on fracking. And um, the claims that were made here did not involve fracking, and that was made very clear uh, to the jury at the beginning of the trial. And really there was no dispute about it. I, I recall that the judge made that very clear in her, or his statements as well. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. And so with that understanding, I think it would uh, perhaps benefit your listeners to get some of the background of the case. Uh, this, First of all, this is a six-year-old case involving two families in Dimmock, Pennsylvania, in the heart of the Marcellus Shale, who sued Cabot, claiming that Cabot's nearby gas wells were responsible for causing methane or natural gas to migrate into the family's water wells. Two families. They originally sued for property damages, for personal injuries, for nuisance damages, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, for loss okay. of royalty. Go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you that, yes, we'll talk about that in a moment, so you go ahead. Yeah, for and for loss of royalties and for other assorted claims. Now, by way of background, I think it's interesting to note that these two families were themselves royalty owners. They had welcomed Cabot into the area to develop the shale gas resources. They'd signed leases with Cabot, and they had received royalties. And I, I think it's also important to note that Mr. Ely, the lead plaintiff, was even employed by a local drilling company that Cabot had acquired to drill its uh, gas wells in the area. But of all of those claims that I've mentioned, ultimately um, they were dismissed with the exception of just the one claim on nuisance. So all the claims for personal injuries and property damages and loss of royalties were all dismissed by the judge for either a lack of evidence or a lack of legal support leaving only this claim for nuisance, which uh, is defined as a substantial interference with the use and enjoyment of real property. That was the one claim that was left that went to the jury, 
and that is the claim that the uh, jury awarded uh, the family, uh, both both families, damages on that claim. And those damages were four point two four million dollars. Yes, about four. Collectively, 2. collectively between the families. That's correct. That's correct. Now that that seems like a, a, an excessive amount for for nuisance. Well, it is, and what's interesting is nuisance is is very very um, um, ill-defined under the law of Pennsylvania. Um, as I say, the definition of it is a substantial interference with the use and enjoyment of real property. What's interesting is the jury's first question when they retired to begin their deliberations uh, was uh, um, looking for some instruction from the court on what the standard was. They didn't have any, any guidance. They were seeking guidance on that. And because the, um, because the, the claim for nuisance is rather ill-defined under Pennsylvania law, the judge was not able to provide them with any further instructions other than, hmm. the, other than the general instructions which he had given. And so the result, as you've pointed out, the $4.2 million result, uh, indeed, uh, it was excessive. There was really no evidence, uh, I don't believe, to support that. We're making an issue of that in our uh, papers uh, after the verdict um, because we think these damages were excessive, in fact, grossly excessive and unsupported by evidence and really without uh, a, a standard or a guide for the jury uh, to uh, to decide. It's not like a claim, for example, for, for personal injuries where you have medical bills and some hard damages that you can go by. You'll have testimony of, of, of physicians, for example. There's none of that when it, when it comes to damages. It's whatever uh, the jury wants to award. And then it's up to the court system to see to, to say whether or not that is um, appropriate or whether it's excessive. And we believe in this case it will be found to be excessive. So that decision is up to the court. That decision is now um, on the court's desk. That's correct. It's part of the post-trial motions that we have filed. And if you want me to, I'd be happy to sort of walk through those briefly. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested because you have already filed those at this point. Is that correct? We have filed those. We filed them uh, recently, and now we are awaiting the plaintiff's filings that they will be making, and then the court will um, review the briefs of both sides. Uh, perhaps we'll hold an argument um, where we would appear in person to argue the motions, or perhaps the court will decide them um, on the on the papers before him, but we're we're seeking the following relief. First of all, we're seeking a, an order from the court uh, that enters judgment in Cabot's favor, notwithstanding the jury's verdict. In other words, setting aside that verdict as not being supported by the evidence. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Yeah, I want to make sure we get time for you to go to, to talk about the evidence as well. And we're down, we've got about five minutes left total. Sure. In the alternative, we are seeking uh, a new trial on, the count, uh, on, on account of the improper conduct 
on the part of plaintiff's counsel, which really permeated the entire trial from the beginning all the way to the conclusion. And then in the further alternative, we're seeking um, an order that would substantially reduce the damages award for the nuisance damages because, as I said earlier, they are so grossly excessive and unsupported by the evidence. The primary thing, though, that we seek is judgment in Cabot's favor, notwithstanding the jury's verdict. And this, this is based upon the complete and total lack of evidence brought forth by the plaintiff's experts to support Cabot as the party responsible for any contamination of these water supplies. The plaintiffs hired two experts, uh, both of whom are quite active in the anti-fracking and anti-fossil fuel uh, arena. They are advocates, and as a matter of fact, uh, one of them, Dr. Ingrafia, uh, it is an admitted advocate, uh, opposed, totally opposed to fracking, and I believe uh, totally opposed to uh, fossil fuel um, exploration and production. But the, these two experts, Mr. Rubin and Dr. Ingrafia, failed to identify a pathway or a link between the nearby Cabot gas wells and these families' water wells. In other words, they did not connect the dots, so to speak. In fact, Dr. Ingrafia, who was really the lead expert, admitted that his methane migration theory, the theory by which he claimed natural gas somehow escaped from the Cabot gas wells nearby, and then found uh, its way into these families' water supplies, he admitted that his theory was based on speculation. And wow. It's our, it's our position that, of course, you cannot, um, you, you cannot sustain a, a verdict based upon speculation. And finally, in order for them to show a nuisance, they had to show that Cabot was negligent in some way in the, in the drilling or the production of these gas wells, and they didn't do that either. And so for all of those reasons, our first uh, and, and foremost uh, request of this judge is to reverse this verdict and, uh, and enter judgment in Cabot's favor. And we uh, have now, as I say, filed these motions, and um, we're confident that uh, they are very strong and they deserve to be granted. We've just got about a minute and a half left. When do you think you're going to have an answer back from the court? That's a good question. The plaintiff's brief is due on the 24th of, um, of this month, of 24th of May. And uh, at any time thereafter, the court uh, could, uh, could issue a ruling. Uh, practically speaking, um, my guess is that we're looking at at least uh, – 60 days, if not 90 days, something in that range okay. before, we, before we'll hear something further. Yeah. We're talking with Steve Dillard, who is the lead attorney on the case with uh, Cabot Oil and Gas out of Houston and the uh, famed water contamination case in Dimmick, Pennsylvania. Steve, we've got about 45 seconds left. Uh, did you want to address something in New York State? Do we have time for you to get into that? Well, I would just say this. One of the things that was uncovered in the discovery of this case and, came, and that came out at trial 
is the funding of the anti-fracking and anti-fossil fuels, um, um, uh, the advocacy uh, involving uh, uh, fracking and fossil fuels, is largely funded by foundations which um, are uh, based in New York. And we got uh, Dr. Ingrafia to admit on the witness stand that um, these foundations have been funding much of the research that he's been doing, um, and I think that's notable. Yeah, it certainly is. I wish we had more time to talk about that. I'd love to cover it more, but we're out of time. It's been great chatting with you, Steve Dillard. I appreciate you taking your time to join us today. And for our listeners, stay tuned for our next segment as we continue on this fascinating topic. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.QuickStake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. You know, we started this conversation along the lines of my column for this week, and my column this week is titled... Colorado's Supreme Court embraces the rule of law, not the fear-mongering of the fossil fuel movement. And while that's the starting place for my column, I'm addressing much more this week than just the Colorado Supreme Court decision, but really addressing a lot of the fear-mongering that the anti-fossil fuel movement is fostering, particularly about water contamination caused by fracking or so supposedly caused by fracking. And, you know, ground zero for this debate really is Dimmick, Pennsylvania, because of the movie's gas land and uh, the, the, the court cases we've discussed. And now we're going to talk with, uh, with Jackie, who is the uh, president of the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania chapter of the National Association of Royalty Owners. So, Jackie Root, thanks for joining us today, and I'm anxious to hear your view from, you know, on the ground there in Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Marita. Thanks for having me. 
So what can you tell us? Uh, would you agree with my statement that Dimmick, Pennsylvania, is kind of ground zero on in this, this battle? Absolutely. Um, the anti-movement really got a, a foothold there, um, sort of got out of control, and then Gasland uh, put it out there in the forefront, and it's been a difficult road to combat the misinformation that they've put out. Well, you know, you mentioned they got a foothold there. How do you think that happened? Well, you know, the, one of the first wells, in, not the first, but one of the early wells in Pennsylvania drilled into the shale was there in, uh, in that area. There have been a lot of wells since. Um, there were some issues that Cabot has acknowledged with some casing, but, you know, that is part of the growing pains of drilling something with a new technology and figuring it out in each location. And uh -huh. I think those problems have been remedied. But um, I think that they, they had longstanding issues there and in lots of places in Pennsylvania with methane in the water. It's naturally occurring in a lot of places. Um, and so I think they saw that as an opportunity to, to gain something from it. You know, one of the lead plaintiffs in the case um, that received this settlement that, of course, is being appealed by Cabot now, um, he actually built a, a large home right down the road from where his other home was. And so it doesn't seem to me that the threat is really could be anywhere near as great as they're saying. Um, yeah, to me, when I read that, when I read that one fact, just that fact alone, that he built a seven hundred thousand dollar house that was seven thousand square feet on the property after the water was damaged right. or was supposedly damaged, has to. That, I mean, that speaks volumes, in my opinion. Right. If the water's, you know, if it's irreparable. If it's an environmental disaster, why would you? If you, and, and particularly if you had the means to, obviously, you probably could have built anywhere you wanted to. Why would you build there, of of all places? But yeah, you know, we we know lots of people in that area. We know people that have had had no issues with their water. Other people who have had what what's usually experienced if there's a problem, you know, some temporary issues with the water. And Keva had been responsive to those people, uh, but they chose to work with them. You know, the, over and over again, the people filing this claim have refuted any, any tests that came back that said it's fine. They've refuted um, th what the So EPA tests said. have come back that said their water was fine. Right, right. And, um, and and when I talked about the methane that's naturally occurring, you know, my, my in-laws, we don't live right there, but it's the same kind of story. You know, 1981, they drilled a water well, and when they were working on the, the casing, finishing things up, um, the water, it would ignite, the, the casing would, because there was methane that was migrating to the surface. There was no drilling in the area this, in 1981. Um, you know, it would, and, it and would literally blow the glass out of your hand at the faucet if you didn't let it vent first. And so they had to vent the well head, and and that happens all over here. But that's not a story that anybody 
cares much to listen to, I guess. <laughs> well, I understand that in the in the recent I understand that the recent court case that concluded in February, as you mentioned, that's being appealed, that they had people that came and testified to that, that they'd lived in the area forever and that this is what happened. Right. And in those areas, so, you know, there's other issues with the water. You know, they're always carrying around their jugs of orange water. Well, I grew up in a household with um, rust, well, we called it rust in the water, um, but iron in the water, high iron mm-hmm. And if you didn't put Calgon in the bath water, that's what your bath water looked like, <laughs> you know, before filtration systems. Um, so, you know, there was just, it was, it was easy to get people stirred up. And um, I think the majority of people there are happy that they've come, happy that they've drilled, and have not experienced this disaster. I'm in a township. We have a well on our property. And there are, uh, I just figured this up the other day, I think, 30-some producing wells and 20 pads. And in our township, we haven't had any water issues. So, and you all, are, you all are on water wells? Yes. Okay, so if there was an issue, you would know. Yes. Yeah. Certainly yeah. in the township I live in. I mean, I don't hear the news all over. Um, I do keep an eye pretty closely on what's happening down in the Dimmick area. Um, and make sure. sure that when this goes to appeal that a judge will likely hear this as opposed to a jury. Sometimes a jury may make their decision based more on emotion where maybe the judge will look more closely at the facts. Um, we were all really taken back by the decision <laughs> to award or was it four plus yeah. million dollars in that case? Um, when you know um, all the people that testified that, well, like in Graffia, for instance, said that he had nothing to base it on when he said that the water was contaminated by fracking, and and then how they go forward then and, and arrive at that conclusion is interesting. Yeah, well, obviously, at least in my opinion, the jur- jury was uh, swayed by some of the, the news, even though I know they're not supposed to be, but they've obviously heard, you know, some of the stories and, and emotion, you know, played, play, they played the uh, David versus Goliath card, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Were you a part of any of those, of the, the proceedings at the trial? No, no. No, just so you didn't, watching, you didn't. watching from afar. Watching the news reports and so forth. Tell me, what do your, um, the National Association of Royalty Owners, I mean, I know who it is because I've spoken at the National Convention, spoken for a couple regional meetings, but many of our listeners may not be aware of what the National Association of Royalty Owners is. Well, we, we are the only organization in the United States that advocates solely for the rights of mineral owners across across the country, and then we have 10 chapters uh, that advocates on a state level because state levels tend to be different than national issues. Um, And so we're there to um, encourage production for obvious reasons. You know, we're mineral Uh and we want to see that occur. um, We want to make sure that uh, development is responsible. And, you know, it's not like we're into drilling at all costs and, you know, that it doesn't matter. No, because they're drilling in general on your land, correct? The drilling is generally taking place on your land. 
And particularly here in Pennsylvania, an awful lot of it is developed on uh, land that where you own the minerals and the surface, and definitely you are very concerned about that. We've farmed for, um, had a dairy for 35 years. Now we have beef, cattle, and horses. And, you know, when <laughs> it annoys me to no end every time they say the environmentalist and that's the and that and that's how they're characterizing the anti-fossil fuel people well farmers are the original environmentalists and nobody cares more about what happens on the land and and the about the quality of the water than farmers do. So so we're very concerned about that. And then the other thing our organization does, we provide education. We want educated mineral owners. And we also, you know, are there to protect our rights. So sometimes we find ourselves um, on the other side of it, dealing with industry. Um, and so in some cases on the on the state level we're out there battling it out for legislation to protect our rights um, but for the most part it's about developing this responsibly and you know we love to tell the story about what actually happens on the ground when development occurs and you know there's lots of us out here that have a good story to tell about it and, and it's not all glossed over either. You know, when they drilled the well on our property, they didn't. They weren't doing uh, secondary and tertiary containment systems to prevent spills. It was very early in the process. But as as time went on and it, it developed rather quickly, all those techniques they use have improved greatly because it, it, it's very costly to them if they have any kind of um, environmental issues. So. Sure. I mean, they don't want that. Like you said, it costs them more if they have a problem. Right. But sometimes, you know, New York State has made, I believe, a huge mistake in preventing this from going forward. You know, if, if other I agree. states had followed suit with what New York did, how do you ever develop this new exciting technology unless you do it? And you can't figure out how to do it right if you can't do it. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes yeah, I mean, ask anyone there. who's... Ask anyone who's successful, and they'll tell you how many failures they had on the way to success. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a part of the process. That's right. So, and it was exciting to watch that for me, and, and that's what I have seen. Um, you know, constant improvement, and not all because the government came in and said, you've got to do this. A lot of it is exactly. it's the right thing to do. I do think industry, you know, where things got a, a hold endemic where Gasland um, did its job in terrifying a lot of people who didn't understand things, industry was silent longer than they should have been, uh, to be frank about that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think I do a lot of speaking, as you know, and I often ask when I'm speaking to an industry group, I ask people with a show of hands, how many of you feel like historically your industry has done a great job getting the message out there? And guess how many people raise their hand? Yeah. Zero. Zero. And, so, and, yeah, that's... And it's not all about, you know, making big donations to hospitals. It's, you know, walking the walk, talking the talk, and... <laughs> Treating your landowners well and then getting out in front of it when misinformation comes out. 
and, and yeah. doing it respectfully. So I was at a conference back in 2009, and it was kind of interesting. It was a very technical conference, and, or 2010. Um, Insight put it on. we got about 20 seconds left, Jackie. Okay, well, let's, let's not go to that story, but, um, <laughs> you know. It was a warning from the Sierra Club about when Gasland came out. And the guy actually said to the crowd, it doesn't matter whether the faucets flaming are true or not. It's the effect it will have on the people. Wow. Well, I'm glad you got that story in. That's important to, to at least hear that part for people to understand what their motives are. Right. So, Jackie Root, president of the Pennsylvania chapter of the National Association of Royalty Owners. Thanks for joining us. We're out of time, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. I hope you found today's conversation to be interesting, uh, perhaps even inspiring. And in our closing segment, we're going to be talking with Victor Furman, who is uh, a landowner advocate of New- in New York, and he is the field director for the Joint Landowners Coalition of New York. And Victor, I found him as I was doing my research for this week's column, Colorado Supreme Court Embraces the Rule of Law, not the fear-mongering of the anti-fossil fuel movement. And as I was doing research, reading articles in local newspapers about the Cabot trial, as we've talked about previously, I found that Victor was a frequent commenter on these articles. And so I, I took a lot of sleuth work for me to track him down, but I did find him. And, Victor, I'm delighted that we've connected and that you are here to be with us on America's Voice for Energy today. Well, thank you very much. So tell me how you got involved in this particular topic. You live in New York, correct, where there is a ban on all fracking. Yes, that's correct. And the way I got involved was in 2008 when the, when the uh, landsman started coming around. Uh, I joined the uh, Antis, actually, at the Unitarian Church in Binghamton, New York. And uh, the very first day there, they handed me a flyer uh, telling me all. Uh, uh, 15 points why we shouldn't have drilling, and the questions were amazing. Uh, you, every one of them, if you answered yes, you were just out in space. So uh, I did my research, and I found out that uh, it was fear-mongering, fear-mongering at its best. Uh, there were questions like, do you want light shining in your eyes 24-7? Do you want trucks up and down your road daily, all day long, for up to three years? And 
things like that. They're just crazy. So uh, as I got involved, I found out and learned more and more about the industry. And eventually I started uh, uh, watching the um, newspapers and the TV articles about what was going on in Pennsylvania. I decided to go investigate it for myself. And uh, the, one of the first people I met was Lauren Salesman on uh, Carter Road, and he's an environmental engineer. And uh, what I did when they said that the walls in Carter Road were all destroyed by gas drilling, I went up and decided to interview the people myself. And mm-hmm. uh, they, said they, they said they always had the natural gas problem there. Uh, they said it was true that the uh, uh, shallow gas pocket in the Mar- uh, above the Marcellus was uh, interrupted by cabin as they drilled, and it did spike the uh, gas in their wells, but that's all it did because no chemicals were used or anything else. And it was mitigated. It was mitigated by putting vents on the wells, and uh, they also had uh, extreme volumes of iron because when you put gas into a water well, it agitates the water, and it lifts up the uh, natural occurring elements that are in the well and sediment on the bottom of the well. So they had to filter them out as well. And um, Lauren told me that uh, Cabot offered him a over $100,000 settlement and that he said he didn't feel right taking it. So uh, as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper into it, I found out that the, the problems they were having just weren't true uh, uh, by the accusations of the antis themselves. It was uh, New York advocates were actually up there uh, uh, what I want to say is they were rallying them around the problems that New York thought they might have, and they were using these people as scapegoats and examples of what would happen in New York, and it was all just a big farce. That's amazing. I haven't heard that story. I appreciate that firsthand story. Do you by any chance still have that page that you received that day with those questions at that original meeting you went to? No, but you can find them on the uh, NIRAD website. Uh, uh, N-Y-R-A-D. Uh, it's the very first questionnaire they put up, and the questions are just outrageous. Uh, like I said, if you answer uh, no to any of them, then, then you're just not right in the head. It's, it's totally aimed at, at making you uh, an anti, period. Uh-huh. But you, instead of just taking what they said, you went to the areas where this uh, where the drilling was taking place in Pennsylvania and actually talked to people who were there who experienced this firsthand and asked them about it. Is that correct? That's correct. I only live a half an hour away from the drilling site, maybe 40 minutes tops, and there was no problem for me to go and look at it. Uh, at that time, Morris Hinchy was our congressman, and uh, uh, when I went there to look at it, Morris was visiting colleges and telling college students, no, uh, this is dangerous, we can't do it. And uh, There was just such a big movement in New York that it poured, over into, it poured over into PA, and anybody who said they had a problem, they were surrounded by the antis, and they were uplifted by the antis, and they, they were told things. Uh, if you look up Vera Scroggins, she has like 1,500 videos online, and she's telling them not to let the gas companies on the property anymore, that she, they could make more money suing them than they can in royalties. So <laughs> that, that's, that was the beginning of it all, and it hasn't stopped even today. They still do the same thing. So how many years has this been going on now? I know you gave us the year you got involved in the beginning of our conversation here, but what was? how many years has it been? Uh, since 2008, and now we're almost into 2017 and six more months. So it, it, 
it's nine years. Uh, but I was actually an advocate uh, against coal since 2001, or excuse me, yeah, uh, 1999, I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, the reason I was an advocate against coal is because I lived in between two coal power plants in Binghamton, New York, the GAF coal power plant and the Gowdy Station power plant. And uh, uh, two of my children developed cancer and my wife died of cancer and uh, my doctor told me to get out of the area so I got involved against coal. Found out it had mercury, lead, arsenic and you know, all, all, this, all the bad stuff being released into the air and my doctor, my wife's doctor told me I should move and I did. Okay. But, now that I've been studying this, coal is an important factor of energy in this country. And in countries like Japan, who just backed off a of nuclear two years ago because of the uh, disaster in Fukushima. Yeah, it definitely. Right. So well, I appreciate, that you've do I appreciate that you've done the research uh, to investigate these things without just buying into them hook, line, and sinker. Well, you know, if you wanted to, if you if you wanted to fool America, you would give yourself a fancy name like Citizens Action, and, and you would be taking money from Russia, uh, from the United Arab Emirates, and you would make movies like Gasland, and that's what these people did. Uh, uh, our own local chapter of Citizens Action, right here in Binghamton, they, they get they took funds from the Russians through some island off the. Bahamas, I can't remember the name of the Uh-huh, yes, I reported on that, yes. Yeah, and uh, uh, they, they just, they're, they're making so much money fighting it, and the ironic part is they're all from the city where they all have natural gas, they all heat with it, and last year during one of the uh, arguments prior to going to their meeting, I went up to the state office building, the highest point in Binghamton, New York, in the city, and I went up to the 18th floor, and I looked out over the city, and I did not see one solar array on any rooftop. Yet this is where the opposition is coming from. It's coming from the people in the city who are being feared, uh, uh, buying into the fear by these articles that are being put out by Citizens Action. Uh, do you remember the ban that Governor Cuomo put on uh, fracking? I mean, Most certainly, says, of course. Right. He said that uh, Dr. Zucker made the decision, and he jokingly smirked and said, this is not my decision, this is the health commissioner's decision. Well, the health commissioner held up the Geisinger report, which was never funded and never done, and he says, we've read many reports, and, and if I had children, of course he doesn't have any children, I wouldn't let them play near a gas well. But the thing is, these reports they were holding up and referring to were written by the antis, uh, except for the Geisinger. That one was never uh, done. And I and I interviewed Dr. Theo Them on the radio. Uh, he's uh, the chief uh, medical uh, officer for uh, uh, people that come in up to Gunther Clinic in Pennsylvania. And he said in the nine years they've been drilling in Pennsylvania, they never had one person come in and complain of any of the illnesses that they complain about in their list of the harm. And he 100% backs drilling. He's a matter of fact, he's got three drills and uh, rigs near him himself, but not on his property. Interesting. Well, it's, it's certainly you're giving us a different side of the story from what is presented in the mainstream media. Well, the mainstream media is... You know, Mr. Trump has it right. They want they want to control the way people think, and you know it's really sad. Uh, 
the news reporting that we get here in uh, Binghamton, locally we've had rallies where we far outnumbered the antis in their rallies, and it never got reported. I was at one rally where I counted, I helped set up the chairs, there was 200 chairs, and there was standing room only, and we got way more people than we expected, there was almost 600 people, and the uh, uh, news media reported up to 100 people. That's the way they've been in this area. Uh, the, the Binghamton Press uh, is our local newspaper. Uh, they come right out and said that they do not back gas drilling and uh, uh, we're going to use our newspaper to fight it. So we've been on an uphill battle ever since this came. You have. You know, there's a movie which I'm sure you're familiar with, which uh, is pro-drilling, uh, called The Empire State Divide that a friend of mine, Karen Moreau, produced. And she interviewed some uh, mayors in areas that are really uh, rural mayors in areas that are really in financial trouble who want um, to have the drilling and the economic development that would come with it. And when I wrote a review on that movie, it was a few years ago that I did this, but when I wrote a review on that movie, I actually called those mayors up and talked to them and talked to, I believe, an editor of a newspaper that she had quoted in the in it. Because I, before I wrote the review, I wanted to make sure that you know the data was right. And so I called these people and talked to them myself. And uh, it, after talking to them, it surprises me that you would say that the local newspaper there has come out against um, drilling because, uh, the, you know, it, it does provide such economic development, which is, of course, a, a boon to the newspapers. Well, the argument itself, is, you know, the hits they get on their online editions, it, it's amazing. The articles are so anti-drilling that you can actually go back and look at the history of the articles. And I called up John Stovall one time, and I got one of his uh, editors, and he, he's the editor-in-chief of the Binghamton Press, and I asked him how come they weren't being fair. And they said, we are being fair. So I went in and I looked at their articles. And for every pro-drilling article, there's five anti-drilling articles. And they have a thing where you can only submit one uh, blog a, a month. But mm -hmm. you go in there and you'll see where some people on the anti-side are getting a blog a weekend. And I, I've tried blogging, and I've gotten letters back saying, you've already had your blog this month. So, and then they actually stopped me from blogging at all. They will no longer accept well, the blog. Well, we've been talking with Victor Furman, and he is a field director for the Joint Landowners Coalition of New York, which is a website you can find, jlcny.org. And, Victor, we've just got a few seconds left. Any closing statement you want to make sure our listeners hear from you? I mentioned Dr. Theo Thumb on the uh, uh, a little bit earlier in your interview, and he is a country uh, uh, clinical specialist there, I guess, a doctor who oversees uh, health care. And uh, the full interview is on that website, jlcny.org, and it's a very good interview. And he, he touches on these points way better than I do. Of course, he's got an education. And he's one of the few doctors in the country that, are, that can uh, actually, has actually done a study on drilling. And his paper was turned down by the Cuomo administration. They wouldn't even look at it. Shocking. Well, I appreciate your time. We're out of time. Everyone, thanks for listening today to America's Voice for Energy on AmericasWebRadio.com. Please join us again next week. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.